Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman. I'm a founding director of the Product Management Center at the University of Washington, and we're developing a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And wow, I'm recovering because Friday and Saturday, we had a bonanza I don't know if that's the right word, but we had a two-day event, the Inclusive Product Management Summit. And Sumeya, you rocked it. You were so fantastic as a moderator on a discussion about embedding inclusion throughout a product organization. Well, Jeff, you had an awesome panel. Both Nancy and Rob were really good, very insightful. Uh, Nancy is someone well-known in the women in IT world. So I was excited to have the conversation with her about having inclusion in the organization at scale, or product inclusion, that is. And Rob, I love his title and his focus. He has a role where he focuses on ethics in the product from the design phase, thinking long-term. So I learned a lot. It was great, a great conversation. So thank you for putting all of that together. Yeah, that was super cool. Yeah, Rob Katz from Salesforce. He's a VP of, I want to say ethical use and design, something like that. I might be messing that up. And then Nancy Wang. And yeah, so great job on that panel. And then Red, both you and Sumeya crowned inclusive product management champions for all to see. And Red, you almost made me cry, man. It's my job, Jeff. You make everyone laugh and I make everyone <laughs> cry. And for the record, by the way, I was being funny because I thought there'd be free cupcakes, but uh, <laughs> no yeah, free there, cupcakes. There were no cupcakes. No. But yeah, so anyway, we've got a great conversation with Date here today. Uh, introduce him in a second. But I do want to give just another big shout out to the companies that supported the Inclusive Product Management Summit. Nate's employer being one of them, Amazon was a platinum sponsor. They gave it the highest level. And it was great seeing their product managers invest their time into learning how to develop more inclusive products and, and manage teams more inclusively. And then our gold sponsors, Axon, Motorola Solutions, Microsoft, and Zillow, uh, the four of them invested in this space and it was fantastic and i hope that you'll join us next time we got to do that again right Sumay and red that we'll do it again next year yes absolutely counting down the days jeff let's go <laughs> awesome so nate thank you so much for being patient here as we reminisce about nine months of work that was put into these two days that we just wrapped up and, and red and Sumay were a big part of nate Tell us a little bit about yourself before we start talking about, you know, leadership principles and, and how they could be applied and, and to better success as a product manager. Yeah, thanks. And I was glad you were reminiscing. I was not able to attend this year, but did last year and really enjoyed enjoyed my time attended with a product manager who's who's on my team. And we both enjoyed the session, but honestly, we just enjoyed the conversations that came out of it. And you know, it's led to us thinking differently and, and making different product decisions, you know, since we attended that. So it's a great event if people also like me didn't get to go this year to do it next year. Yeah, my story is that Amazon is the first and only company with more than 20 people in it that I've ever worked at. So, you know, rewinding post-college, I spent 
10 years in New York City and pretty quickly stumbled into being a co-founder of increasingly serious startups. And I will get to the last startup very quickly, but the along the way, I think the thing that I I'm most grateful that I got to experience was I, uh, it was a really fun time in the New York tech community, seeing products like Tumblr and Foursquare were, you know, really taking off in that time. Google opened up a big headquarters there, you know, is now a big part of the tech community. And now I'm going to sort of trail off on that story because I left seven years ago. So after running this organization, a 60,000 member organization called the New York Tech Meetup, while I was doing startups, my last startup that I did was called Picture Life. And we met the Amazon team as we were looking for ways to get out of the startup. It was a cloud photo service for backing up and enjoying your photos. And the writing was on the wall that this type of product really belonged in one of the, the big tech companies, that this was going to be not something that you could really make money on independently, but, but was best integrated with the phone you had or the devices you had in your living room. And so after meeting the Amazon team, myself and some of the team, we all uh, hopped over to Amazon about seven and a half years ago. And ever since I've had the honor of leading the product and now program management teams at Amazon. All right. Thanks for that background, Nate. Thanks for being here. And, you know, Amazon, they're not just a platinum sponsor on pretty much everything the product management center does, but is also, that's their biggest claim to fame, I think, as far as I know. No comment, <laughs> Red. Fun. Thank you. Nice one. <laughs> Don't encourage him. Don't encourage him. <laughs> Keep it coming. All right. So anyway, but this is independent of all of that. But, you know, Amazon is well known, even before they sponsored anything of the product management center, for the leadership principles, for the mechanisms that they've put in place that, that help make working backwards from the customer possible. So I'd love to just kind of dive deep, but not speaking for Amazon, but just speaking for yourself, you know, what are the things that you've done and some of the structures that are in place that you think could benefit product managers anywhere and that you wish you would have done in your product experience beforehand? And then Sume, I'd love for you to kind of chime in as to how they relate to some of the things that you've seen and also just chime in with questions as we kick off this conversation. But Nate, maybe start with just one thing that's done that you think adds a lot of value to the way that you think about product management. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Jeff, and I really look forward to getting some of the questions. And but I, let me actually just outline because there's only four things that I wanted to, you know, just mention, and then I feel like we can run down any hallway we want throughout the evening. Uh, you know, the the kind of idea here was, goodness, there's all this stuff that's not proprietary about how we do product management at Amazon. You know, I, I'm posting up on my Twitter. It's at Innonate some of the links along the way as I mention these things. But Jeff mentioned leadership principles. I'll also mention a letter that Jeff you know, Bezos wrote, a, an annual shareholder letter, and a link to the 2016 letter. And so anyway, I'll kind of post those things there so folks can get at them. But uh, the, the four things that I think you know, that I would take with me anywhere, if and ever I live, leave Amazon, are one, how Amazon sets goals, two, how Amazon works backwards from customers, three, how Amazon moves quickly through the escalation process, which I think is the one that I want to just quickly hone in on. And the fourth one is leadership principles. And that I feel like is going to be like that once we start that conversation, we're just going to go on and on. 
So let me just give a quick example of the escalations. So there's a 2016 letter. So it was released in 2017. And it was a response to an all hands question that somebody asked that was, Jeff, what does day two look like? And it was a really awesome, well, the answer at the all hands was short and somewhat pithy. And you can actually see the video on this on this link. And if you just Google 2016 shareholder letter, you'll get it faster than I can post it. But he then followed up in the shareholder letter expounding on this. And basically what he calls out is the need to escalate quickly. He calls out this dysfunction that happens in every type of organization, doesn't just happen in product management, doesn't just happen in tech or for profit even, which is where people try to agree with each other too much. They spend too much time wallowing in trying to agree. And what that means is you slow down. It means that you might take a average, you know, sort of a consensus that isn't an opinionated path. And what he outlines in this letter, and we reference on a daily basis as we're trying to move quickly inside of a big organization, is just like, hey, you all aren't agreeing. Why don't we just go up to and then name the decider? Every org chart eventually leads to a decider, even if you're spanning across you know, VPs or different organizations and say, okay, who's the decider on this? Who's the next layer of deciders? And rather than rat holing on this, why don't we just why don't we just go have that conversation? And it sort of puts joy in the word of escalation because escalation sounds dirty, but if you actually lean into this idea, it's actually sort of a joyous bias for action, and that's a leadership principle we'll talk about. But this leader, this this joyous moving forward to kind of the next step, and I, I can definitely answer some questions about it. But that's the first one: is just quick escalations in a way that's positive, that's about forward progress and about avoiding kind of the pain of, of sort of stasis on a tough question. Nate, when it comes to escalation and attached to that is decision-making, one of the folklore pieces or stories from Amazon is around this two-way door, one-way door principle. How does that apply when thinking through decisions and not having to basically create one framework that fits all? Yeah, I, I think the one-way door and two-way door decision fits both in this escalation mechanism you know, that we use. So fits in nicely with a few other mechanisms. I think one thing that leaders have to be very intentional about, and I see people being very intentional about, that makes me happy, it makes me you know, like working where I work, is actually it's a sort of a top-down action where a leader says, hey, you know, you've come to me for a decision but I don't think there's an absolute right answer here. I think it's a judgment decision, and I want you to make that judgment decision. And you might send somebody away with the criteria on which you want them to make that judgment decision. Like, hey, you run down that one data point you know, before you make the decision just so that you have the full picture. But I think that's one way that it can be put into action is sort of being very intentional about assigning the decision to somebody, even when somebody thinks you are the decision maker. I think another one is, you know, you only need to escalate. So there's this leadership principle called have backbone, but disagree and commit. And so the idea is that you should stand your ground. You do need to stand your ground when you have a certain perspective, but you also need to know 
when to disagree and commit, when to sort of accept the other person's position and, and move on. And I think the one-way door, two-way door decision sort of really factors into that because you might not want to disagree and commit. You might want to escalate and say, hey, you know, I'm not willing to have you make the decision. I'd like the person in the org chart who is above both of us to make that decision. And that's fine. But you yourself might say, you know what, this is a two-way door decision. I disagree with my peer over on this thing, but ultimately we should move quickly. And you know what's even quicker than escalating, which is very quick if you do it right? It's me disagreeing and committing. And I think if you can have that narrative with yourself about something that you're comfortable is a two-way door decision and it's about what a peer is doing, it really speeds things up. Okay, one last follow up. So when it comes to escalation, a lot of times it also needs to be balanced with ensuring the team has a sense of autonomy around decision making. So when does it make sense for a PM or a product team to escalate and when does it not? I think it's as soon as you can identify that there's going to be diminishing returns from making that decision as a group. I have a there's a PM on my team who's collaborating with a pair of UX designers on a new feature we're building. And I just was so, I had goosebumps because they had a meeting together on Monday and they're having, it wasn't this past Monday, it was maybe three Mondays ago. And they, they realized that they were disagreeing on a key point. And I had a meeting, you know, I think they met sometime midday. I had a meeting midday the next day. You know, this stuff can sometimes happen, you know, when we're back in the office in person even faster. But, uh, you know, meeting the next day with myself and my peer, who's the director of UX, because sometimes you're not escalating necessarily all the way up to the, the ultimate decider. Sometimes you'll bring two peers together who are the one or two layers above in the decision-making ability. And we had a meeting within 24 hours. And what was so key about that is, you know, the trap that people fall into is realizing that they have a disagreement and then not knowing the difference between a disagreement that needs more investigation, more debate, and maybe they'll convince each other on one side or the other, or recognizing when, no, they're just opposed. And the most respectful next thing to do is to escalate because otherwise they would just spin their tires. And I was just really impressed with them as a group that they immediately recognized that they were in that tight B, where they just were not going to agree, which is totally fine. It was a very much a judge, you know, this is UX and product. So it's very much a judgment decision. We're consumer Amazon Photos is a consumer product. So so much of what we do is just judgment. And yeah, they escalated quickly. So I think it's just recognizing, you know, should we hammer it out a little bit more? Will we learn something from each other? Will one of us change our mind? Or no, are we pretty set in these ways? We have, it's actually kind of fundamental what we're disagreeing on. And so let's escalate super quickly. Yeah, I, I think the road to that usually involves a lot of question asking. And I think one of the most important skills, I guess, shows up also in the principles is around curiosity. So when you have two people, a PM and a designer or engineers with a disagreement or other peer PMs, I think one of the key skills that helps move beyond that moment of, let's say, disagreement or confrontation or whatever that might be, is asking the right questions and understanding when you have reached the end of the line or have arrived at that clear nucleus of disagreement that's fundamental, that, you know, if you don't really get it resolved so you can decide on that disagree and commit, you won't be able to move forward anymore. 
What else, Nate, comes up for you when it comes to the escalation? And I'm thinking about interpersonal things. So beyond decisions around the product, does the team escalate, you know, issues of working together? Yeah, I mean, I think talking about escalations for me is very much about kind of decision making. And there is, of course, the escalation from let's categorize it imperfectly, say interpersonal, I'll just call it HR, you know, or let me put it to the higher and develop the best. I absolutely, if, if somebody sees something that, you know, maybe a behavior of a peer that, you know, isn't leading to the most healthy environment or even tips for that peer to, you know, hone their own ability, but it's not the type of feedback that is best given directly. That is very common. I put that under the category of hire and develop the best where, you know, we don't have leadership principles. Sorry, I'm I'm referencing another leadership principle here, but, you know, we don't have leadership principles that only apply to managers or only apply to certain people. They apply to everybody. Higher developed the best is something that applies to everybody. You might express that in different ways. And so some people absolutely will express it in, you know, care and concern. And and that is important. I think it is somebody's, you know, responsibility. And I say as an Amazonian, because that's the context in which these literships are applied for me every day. But this is, again, where I think it can be applied anywhere. Just people can look at it as their responsibility to raise these kind of issues, not because, you know, it's gossiping in any way, but because you want somebody else to succeed, but the feedback needs to get to them. Or, you know, it can be, you know, inappropriate behavior or, you know, something like that. You know, I've heard of, you know, somebody had a snide comment and, you know, in a meeting and, you know, that just needs to get nipped in the bud. And, you know, certainly that can happen as well. But I do separate that from, you know, escalation because just when I talk about it in the context of Amazon and how it can be applied, I feel like it's best to keep that sort of pure to the decision-making process. Should we talk about the working backwards? I think that was the first one you brought up, Nate. Yeah. And that's one that, you know, in reading uh, Working Backwards, <laughs> the latest book that has been written on Amazon since I haven't worked there, but it's one of those books that I actually give to a lot of people who are going through transformation in their organizations, you know, more from the legacy, think companies that have been around for, you know, 100 years and trying to catch up in many ways, and they need to do a, a whole cultural revolution inside their companies, not just a technical one. But it's one of my favorite parts about this working backwards principle, at least from the book. They talk about how they arrived at it, the iterative process, and some of the tools that are used in it. Everything from the PRFAQ to, you know, using the memo format in the discussions. So I'm curious about some of your favorite takeaways and why you think thinking backwards is really important to product managers. Yeah. And, you know, I will say that I have not read that book and I feel like I should. And I actually was in a review of a PRFAQ yesterday and I said, hey, I don't think we're supposed to do it this way. And I'll say what that this way is. But <laughs> the PM who was presenting the doc said, actually, I looked up on the, you know, the best practices wiki and sure enough, this is how you're supposed to do it. So I am not by any means a probably the best practitioner or the most educated on it and certainly wasn't around when it was formulated, but I've written my fair share and yes, absolutely come to love it as a mechanism. So I'll, I'll share why I love it. I think the first one is when you first sit down and you write that PR, so PR FAQ, so it's a one page press release up to five pages. You never have to take the full six pages, but 
together, the PR plus the FAQs should not exceed six pages. And then you can kind of go wild on appendices. But when you sit down to write that PR, one of my favorite things, to be honest, is actually writing what the date is going to be. You're supposed to be that level of intentional because it is a press release style and you can go Google what a press release looks like and you have a date on it. It's the date that you're announcing this thing, that you're launching this thing. And that by itself is actually incredibly powerful because it launches your first conversation, which is about, and it doesn't have to be your first conversation. You just have to get there, which, you know, what is the scope of this? Is this something that customers should see sort of in all of its glory? And so we should, you know, wait a couple of years or, you know, wait a longer period of time, whatever that looks like for the, the idea that you're working on, or should we kind of iterate quickly? Should we get something out there? Is it, you know, launchable and announceable, you know, in a shorter time frame? And so I think just that mechanism alone of just having to start writing that first page and having to pick a date is great. I think the other one that I like about it is you do need to be able to tell the story. Here I might actually call out that one thing, and I don't know if this is in the official rule book of PRFAQs today, but there was a time when there was an experimentation going on at Amazon where it's like, well, it doesn't have to be a press release style. It could be a blog post style. You know, who's your favorite blogger who you, you know, would love to cover this launch for you? Maybe right in their style and, you know, maybe it's The Verge or you know, maybe it's another you know tech publication, or maybe it's the New York Times, or whatever it is. But you can write in their voice. But I think that part of it of trying to create a message, which is genuinely something that a public could consume and understand, versus narrating what the features are, is very clarifying. Sorry, real quick, I wanted to echo. Like, I just love the PRFAQ approach in that it really makes you. Put yourself in the shoes of a non-expert. Really put yourself in like, what's the benefit? Who's your customer? And what are they saying about your product if it's out there in the wild? And so I'm curious, Nate, if you could get into maybe an example without giving away confidential secrets, maybe talk at a high level. How has this PRFAQ approach helped you avoid going down the wrong path? Like, have you seen somebody create a PRFAQ and it's just like, hey... This is way too technical. Like, have you seen that way of approach kind of save you from certain decisions? I can't give you a bow on a specific terrible decision we could have made, but I, I can say you can spot complexity really quickly when you read these things. And then you have to ask, is this just because somebody's not framing it correctly, you know, and not figuring out how to simplify the messaging? Or is it because the, you know, the underlying thing itself is just is just too complex. And so and that happens almost every time. And over time, I don't think you have to have an enormous amount of experience in product or in even reading these things. If you know to look for it, you, your judgment can probably, you know, every, everybody's judgment can kind of figure that out. And so I think that is very helpful. You know, hey, this just seems complex. Like this is a mouthful as you're trying to explain it. How do we simplify this? If, if you can't make it a an elegant and simple message, then go back to the drawing board. And have you found that just the process of trying to write a press release has helped you like before you even bring it to the attention of anybody else, or maybe somebody on your team before they brought it to you, that they were like, wow, you know, just trying to write what they would say about this in the press and what customer quotes would be makes me realize that maybe I'm not on the right path. A hundred percent. And I, this is the you know, I don't want to say this is the biggest thing I teach because I'm sure I'll say that five times, but this is one of the most important things is, is people are getting accustomed to this style of 
planning and decision making and discovery, which is if you and this is honestly with any document, forget a PRFAQ for a second, but Amazon's very written. But if you set out to write a document in order to prove a point, rather than write a document to go on a ride and find out what the answer is, then you're going to write a bad document. It's just not going to be convincing. Even if objectively the perfect, you know, the idea itself is the right idea, you will do your idea a disservice if you write it from the position that this is a foregone conclusion and I just need to put the right words on the page so that everybody understands that. It has to be a mechanism for you to be convinced that you are wrong. One of my favorite leadership principles is this one called R write a lot, and people get this. This people think all right a lot means that you're just like right all the time and because you're super smart or something ridiculous like that. But the key part of that leadership principle, the very end of it is because you work to disconfirm your beliefs, <laughs> right? Like that you do the work to figure out why you're wrong. And so I think that that is super powerful. And so if you can write a document and then at the end of it or midway through the process, even saying, you know what, I'm not even pushing for this anymore. I can't build the case that has happened and it doesn't happen enough. I don't probably do that enough, but that is pure magic about this process is if it can lead you to not do something uh, that you thought going into it, you were going to be an advocate for. I just wanted to add very quickly to something that Nate said about write a lot. What I love about the placement of that principle, and the placement doesn't necessarily matter all that much, but if you look at the list of the principles, you know, write after it is learn and be curious. And so, you know, I write a lot, learn and be curious. There is humility, but there is strength of opinion and there is always seeking to understand whether your bias is the correct one or not. So I think there is something to be said there. If you read the principles, at least the 14 of them, you will notice that there is some tension between them. And I think it exists in there to make sure the right behaviors are exhibited for the right outcomes. So yes, you want to be right, but without that ego that makes you unable and unwilling to examine data that can show that you are not correct. I love that you connected the dots between those being next to each other. I have never done that before. And you know, this is what I love about this very simple document. I refer to it as Talmudic at work because like I read it I have, you know, bookmarked, I read it a million times that you, you kind of have to read them when you're interviewing people because you want to be able to cite them accurately. And then, you know, here I am seven and a half years later and you're teaching me something new about it. I definitely feel like they play off each other, but that intentionality of them being next to each other, I've never noticed that before. Actually, I had in my notes, I, when we did talk about leadership principles, if I can riff off of it, I had all right a lot. And this work to disconfirm your beliefs actually goes into one of my favorite one, which is a close cousin of learning to be curious, but it's dive deep. You know, dive deep is, you know, something where really, really getting into the truth, you know, whatever that truth is, is one aspect of dive deep and just, you know, being unsatisfied until you have that answer. And that's one of my favorite interplays is the R write a lot dive deep interplay. Excellent. Now, Red, it's your chance to lead. Hopefully you've got a principle for diving deep with the audience here <laughs> and doing your thing. So Red, are you just not coming off mute and giving me a little bit of a laugh? Red, I can't help it. Why? Why are you not? <laughs> participating. Just give me something. I'm not an email. Give me the clap. I'm not an email. 
But to be fair, Jeff, I do have a framework. So may you know you have your frameworks. R-E-D stands for relate, educate, and dig deep. So Nate, 100% can relate to uh, what you're talking about. So for everyone who's wondering why I'm not laughing at Jeff's jokes, it's because as funny as they are, I can't wait. I can't count the seconds fast enough for the opportunity for you, those who are out there live right now listening in, to have the opportunity to ask a question to Nate and Sumeya. These are experts in the field that know everything about product management, and if they don't know it, they can give you at least a direction of where to go to find those answers. So if you're there in the audience, 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 and you have questions to ask, this is an opportunity because we're on Clubhouse. You know, unfortunately for those who are not here live and you're listening to the podcast, we are now live on Clubhouse and there are people who are listening in that can either raise their hand, we'll invite up on stage, or if you are shy, go ahead and ask your question right in the conversation tab. Now with every week, Jeff, that goes by, a lot of times people are just listening in casually, so it takes a little bit of time to get some of those questions out there. So I'm gonna pass it back to you in just a second. But while we wait for Q&A, while we wait for those hand raisers, I wanna point out one thing, Nate, just a heads up, you may not remember me, but I wanna give a decade old thank you because your efforts for the New York Tech Meetup when I was living in New York is what inspired me to become a community leader. It's what inspired me to start the New York or the Seattle Tech Meetup, which ended up getting us invited to the White House as the fastest growing meetup and got me to finally meet Scott Heiferman and Hefferman and say thank you in person. So Nate, I don't know if we've ever met, but I owe you a decade old thank you and a big old bear hug. Thank you so much. That makes my day, honestly, more than you can imagine. It's sort of the proudest chapter of my career. And thank you for calling that out. That will carry me for a few days. It's what I do. And it's only what I do because of you. So keep carrying that weight of proudness. And I imagine I'm not the only one. There are others out there like my partner, Mr. Green, Red and Green Show. We love it. And it's all thanks to what started in New York with you. So with that in mind, I'm not seeing any hands come up yet. Jeff, this is not an anomaly, but what happens when we don't have questions? We forced controversy. Mm, mm, Yes, there's going to be blood in the water if we do this right. (laughs) If we do this right. (laughs) It's funny because I think Nate was saying like disagreement is good. And yet we've seen that we can never get disagreement here on how to succeed in product management. We try every week. We're going to try real quick right here. Get your hand raised if you want to ask your own question about Amazon's leadership principles or the working backwards from the customer philosophy and how they could help product managers anywhere do a better job and drive success. But now controversial opinions. Nate, I want you to do your best to dig deep into something that you think, hmm, I believe this strongly, but maybe Sumeya does not. Let's float that idea and see if we can get a battle, battle royale. Anything controversial opinions, Nate, that you have? Oh, I would be faking it if I said yes. Um, <laughs> oh, you gotta give me, you gotta give me a second to think. Nate, about Nate, that. I got you, I got you. So, Sumeya, you weren't here last week when there was shark frenzy in the water, and I was like, "Where's Sumeya? <laughs> we need her." I'm gonna frame the question a little bit differently, Jeff. You see, we see a lot of best practices that are parroted everywhere. Which ones do you think are naive or just flat out wrong in product management? So let's get a little bit more specific. If there's a best practice out there that you've heard of in product management, which one are you fundamentally going to say out loud right here, right now? That's just wrong. I don't know why it's a best practice. And then we got some hand raisers. So after you attempt to start answering this, we're going to start bringing folks up on stage. So what do you think, Nate? 
Why is uh, my memory is not serving me? I don't know about you, Nate. <laughs> if you remember. Yeah, I mean, I I think one thing I didn't give in my background is I am a very self-taught sort of product. I, I have people on my team who are so deep into best practice, and I lean on them extremely heavily to make us an excellent product management organization. And I don't have strongly held beliefs. I'm really just, I have, I guess, what the beginner's mind here, where I'm still figuring this out and just kind of stealing what seems to make sense. So I can't answer it. May you do you share that opinion here? It looks like you might have to agree here. And that's, we're going in the wrong direction. <laughs> I, you know, the areas where I, I tend to sometimes have some disagreement are around methodology. And so, you know, how how dogmatic do you need to be, especially if you're talking about the early days of a company or an organization making a change? Or is it all in for the win? <laughs> or is it just a little bit and being pragmatic going to be effective? Like that nuance is where I tend to have a lot of disagreement and where I, you know, have data to support both sides of the argument. I myself have that data or, you know, the people I'm talking to. So basically the one thing that I think is going to be wrong every time is being inflexible. While there is a lot that's not fundamentally new in our work, you know, things around experimentation, the scientific method, analysis, using data, you still have moments when you might be too early or too late to something. I, I mean, yes, there is nuance here. At the end of the day, it's really hard to disagree when I can think about scenarios that are right for one situation, but not right in another. Long way of saying sorry. <laughs> it's it's okay. It's okay. I, there's an adage for at least some product managers to always say no. And I think you, you disagreed with that adage in a way of saying that inflexibility is going to hurt your career. Again, every show could be different. Some people have heavy opinions. We don't have to push it because guess what, folks? John, our friend John, a 3D creator, a mastermind of a good question, not to set the stage too high for you, John, has joined the stage. So without further ado, it's the first question of the evening. The mic is yours, John, if you can introduce yourself. And uh, as always, if the question needs more clarification, Nate, Samaya, dig in. Hey, oh, um, hey, and thanks thank you guys for uh, for being here and discussing this this topic. It's pretty interesting. Uh, my name is John Carver. I'm a mechanical design engineer. And sorry about that. I'm in the garage. You know, by the way, John, I think it's yeah. very appropriate that you're in the garage as you're explaining what you do as a career. There's got to be a pun or something ironic about that. Absolutely love it. Oh, no, I'm building a thermal test vehicle and another photogrammetry setup. So fun uh, stuff. Of course you are. Of course <laughs> yeah. you are. <laughs> also, Amazon started in a garage. So yeah, perfect. Yeah. So my, my question is around like, well, twofold, like one or maybe it's onefold. But I think, I think I've lost, lost my thought on the other one, but um, for doing things that are more like innovative, so how do you, or what have your new approaches to those types of things where it's not as easy to say, go to marketing or go to UX or go to somebody like that to start the whole process to find out like this, we call it in my, where I work outside in development methodology, but I think it's the same as like, I, I look at it like a backing out, like similar to a work back schedule, like the same way. And I'm just curious is like, how is that different? Or is it, do you see it the same exact way when it's something that's innovative and maybe not as what's it called standard, right? I can't just go to someone potentially because of various reasons and say like, Hey, you got this really new, crazy idea. 
and is it worth moving forward with or how to how to frame it maybe come up with the product requirements prd and mrd type requirements appropriately by going outside in if it's maybe new or innovative to the point where maybe i don't know if that's possible or is it and it's just maybe i'm not thinking about it the right way i'm going to point nate to this one and again nate one of the rules of clubhouse and our podcast is if you need to clarify or oversimplify the question feel free but nate what are your thoughts on this my thoughts are that it's really hard to do something that is is another way to describe this sort of do things that don't make sense to other people that and potentially don't exist or maybe change the paradigm of how maybe people utilize something or do things yeah i find that it is i mean this is just the difference between being in a startup and being a startup founder and, and then you know doing product management in a group setting is we do. We talked this first part of this conversation was about, you know, getting people to agree or getting somebody to decide that's not you. And so to preserve a an idea that seems big or different or misunderstood, the best tactic I've come up with, and I'd love to hear if there's other ideas, is to just be very transparent that there is a lofty endpoint that might not make sense to everybody, but that there's a next step that maybe they can agree on. Ideally, there's you can do that. Ideally, you can say, I probably can't get you to buy into this thing. Or maybe that's why you're asking this question is because you've reached that point. And then say, but, but can we agree that this incremental step on that way there is something we should do? And if it turns out to be successful, then maybe I can take the next step after that in that direction. And I've had a little bit of success doing that. And I think the, the transparency part of it is really key. So it's not, you're not being subversive or anything, but you're just calling out what you agree on and where you're trying to go, but that they don't need to buy into that full picture yet. What do you think, John? Was that helpful in regards to now? I'd love to may for you to weigh in as well, if you have anything to add. Yeah, it's a, it's a good starting point. Yeah, it just, it gets, and it's kind of an, I wouldn't say it's new. We just lost our way and we're kind of... <laughs> reassessing our methodologies and that's the whole outside in and it's kind of I don't I don't think our systems in place are very well put together to do that and then some of the things we're poking around are in that kind of blue sky type uh, work and so I'm just kind of yeah just trying to trying to understand maybe ways to approach it so that it makes sense and I and I, I really like the I actually the book that was recommended I I want take a read on that and I already bought it actually just now and yeah just trying to see like what the best way is maybe to approach that and yeah maybe have make make sense of it, you know, kind of like, I know it's difficult to distill some of these to like a set process. So I was trying to map this kind of stuff out and just trying to better understand the way, a good way to approach it. It's a little more systematically than kind of just throwing stuff against a wall. That makes sense. So. Well, John, if I could, I want to borrow your question and maybe expand on it it's for a larger audience where there are a number of product managers that are new and have you know joined product management with maybe not as much blue sky opportunity, but ultimately they want to make their micro impacts. But then comes a point in your career where you have this blue sky ahead of you. And one of the questions that I'm curious about, maybe to expand a little bit, is and Samaya leaning in on your frameworks or your background and history here is, what is a, a great way to protect yourself when you're faced with the blue sky? In addition to the work you already need to land on. So think about already being performant, already having a job, and then suddenly they're putting you into an R&D position or launching a new market. What's a good way to approach that? Or better yet, how often does that even happen? So, so you're saying you have to do both at the same time? 
Well, ideally, when I talk about smaller companies, that is a forcing function. <laughs> At least that's an expectation. Yeah. But larger yeah. companies, I can imagine that doesn't happen as much. Yeah. Well, there is a theme here. I, I just want to start with a couple of points. I don't understand how big the company is or the startup is. But talk of process, when we're talking about startups, gets a little annoying to me. <laughs> Not to use a very reductive way of describing this, but what I mean by that is if we're talking about a group of, you know, 10 people, then they should be able to talk to each other and process should be extremely light. What they shouldn't be light on or skimp on are two things. One, principles. You should definitely have principles or shared values that you actually talk about and document and understand so that you can at least make sure that you're hiring constantly all the people. In fact, for when it comes to principles, if you are two people, you need to have that understood and laid out so that you can make sure the culture of your company and you know, your North Star is understood by everyone. But then the next thing after that is product market fit. And so whether you're in a large company or a small one, if you're talking about a brand new product, hopefully that's really where all your focus is. And sometimes that you know includes building something and sometimes it just includes research. So determine what kind of product or markets you're dealing with, and then you'll understand which one of the two you you really need to focus on first. I think there is sometimes a bias towards one or the other. Some people, I mean, it's easier with software, for example, to start writing code immediately and, and iterate and test it. But even with that, it depends on what markets you're in. So I just uh, wanted to highlight that as nuance. Then Red, to answer your question a little more on the notes, when it comes to taking on new roles, the thing I think about is context shifting a lot. Uh, so there are people who are really good about it and or in it and people who are not. So the thing you want to understand early on or get the leeway to understand early on is what are the expectations and then being one communicating your understanding or what you're learning, especially if you're holding two roles at the same time. What are the expectations? What does success mean? And who can you ask for help? Or what are the resources available to you? Or at what point will it make sense to move beyond that? So thinking a little ahead for you to be successful in an R&D role, if in three months you achieve certain goals, does that mean this role becomes full-time for you or do you guys hire a new person? So sometimes thinking ahead is extremely helpful there. But then like fundamentally, when it comes to, to doing two jobs, Red, the one thing I worry about is the person just failing, like setting themselves up for failure if they don't have support from their leadership or they are not able to communicate what they need. I think that was really helpful context. And I, I ultimately asked that question in a generic way, Samaya, because there's a lot of different people listening in that spans the gambit from startup to later in their career. And John talking about Blue Sky could very well be a late stage R&D or could be early stage efforts uh, in the go-to-market function. So thank you for weighing in on that. Also, just a heads up, I do have a question for John. Could you unmute yourself and tell us the book you were referencing? You referenced a book? And uh, J.S. wants to know, what book were you referring to? Oh, I'm working backwards. 
working backwards to that original question. Hopefully, JS, the joke is it's actually called working backwards. Okay. And Sumaya, look at you. You already put it into the chat. What am I doing in life? No, I, am <laughs> I love that book. Uh, like I told you, there are two books I always recommend, Accelerate by Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Gene Kim. And the second one is Working Backwards. And it, by the way, it has case studies about AWS and Prime Video and details about what did the PRFAQ look like for them and pricing and how they had those discussions and what did MVP look like and how it took 18 months to just start writing code for AWS. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I love that book. Speaking of books, Nate, knowing that this book is about Amazon, what is the book that is being read in Amazon and recommended by Amazon today? Like what are product managers geeking out on in, in your side of the org? I, I started a little book club and it has been enjoyable, just a cross-functional group of people reading. And we are presently actually reading Signal in the Noise, which is a, an older book at this point that Nate Silver did. And, you know, if you just want to weep, about sort of the pandemic, then you sort of get to this chapter on, you know, the historical pandemics and the signals that we can learn from them. But but right before that, we read uh, The Cold Start Problem by uh, Andrew Chen, and that was fantastic. It was just fantastic for just as a conversation starter. It was intellectually interesting. It was fast paced. I thought it was really well written. And it just got, again, this cross-functional group of people talking and it was not too heavily specific about our own product, which of course has some social elements to it, given photos, but you know, it just had that perfect mix. So cold start problem is, is one I'd call out. Well, I appreciate you highlighting the book because a lot of people, when they come to these groups, when they listen to podcasts, they love to throw down and buy these books. Uh, buy them on Amazon, wink, wink. Although I imagine Nate, you didn't endorse that. So with that in mind, I'm going to hand things off to Jeff. Thank you, John. I'm going to throw you back into the audience and appreciate your question. Hope you build the next flux capacitor or I'm just kidding. Whatever it is you're building in your garage, I hope it turns out exactly as you imagined it or better. And uh, with that in mind, Nate, again, a decade later, big thank you, a big hug, and hope you continue to inspire others the way you inspired me. Back to you, Jeff. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Samaya. Another fascinating conversation. This one focused on how Amazon's leadership principles and this working backwards approach can help product managers everywhere. I want to thank that this conversation was just because Nate reached out to me, but I do want to thank Amazon in particular for being the platinum sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, uh, which is the Product Management Center's program to bring more diversity into product management. We've got 135 professionals from historically marginalized communities. They're already getting uh, fantastic product manager jobs, and we've got about 100 left that we would love to see get hired. And we're grateful that Amazon has financially supported that program so that we can invest in the next generation. Also, Amazon was the platinum sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Summit. Two days of learning that concluded Saturday wiped me out completely, but energized me because, gosh, I have to say, there are so many organizations and so many people fighting for a more inclusive future. And I think this is so important because the traditional success metrics for a product manager, you know, driving success for your business, driving success for your customers, you achieve those with inclusion. Inclusion being thinking about a broader lens of who is served by your innovations. 
And also, inclusion is a moral imperative in its own right. What could go wrong when you give more people access to technology and ways to improve their lives? So grateful that Amazon's a huge partner in what we're trying to do. And grateful that Nate uh, came on here to talk about this, talk about how you succeed as a product manager. I want to give time for concluding thoughts, and I know Sumeya probably has to bounce the earliest. So Sumeya, you had a back and forth, kind of compared a little bit uh, from what uh, Nate's doing at Amazon to what you've done. What do you want to leave the listener with today? Yeah, you know, one of the things I think about a lot when thinking about any company's principles is that if taken, if any of them is taken to an extreme, you you end up with a situation that's not desirable. Take, for example, what's happening at Meta. And I think Amazon has also had its own second degree effects to reckon with. And, you know, if you look at Bezos's last shareholder letter, he talks about fixing some of the safety issues and caring about employees. What I say is one of my favorite things about companies that do what they do well is when they own up to it. And so, yes, I read sometimes a company's principles with a grain of salt and I might roll my eye on one thing or the other, but that does not take away from the fact that when they own up to it, they're showing courage, they're showing their employees how to do the right thing. And I appreciate that. And I just didn't want to let that be lost in the conversation and highlight it as something that's great and is a good example for all of us. All right. And rhyming with great is Nate. And Nate's great contribution to my existence right here is that he inspired Red to get into tech. Red inspired me to get onto Clubhouse. Together, we worked with Sumeya, and we've been doing this every single week for over a year. So, Nate, you are the reason we're all here in some sense. Uh, What do you want to leave the audience with? Well, I feel like I need to change my answer to something about what you just connected and, and read. I just took a scan at my Gmail and saw our interchange, you know, our, our emails back and forth back in 2007, 2008. So that's so awesome to be reconnected. You know, the thing that I will leave with, and I think it actually is a good continuation of what Sumeya was saying. My favorite line at Amazon is a line that happens after every time you write tenants. So tenants seem like in any document, it could be a six page narrative, it could be a PRFQ. Eventually you should probably come out and say what your tenants are for the project. The tenants feel like they're immovable and you cannot write the word tenants on Amazon without following that with the parenthetical, unless you know better ones. Unless you know better ones. That is a green light for anyone at any level to use their voice to dive deep, to do the work and say, yeah, this is how it's been done. So much so that it's been written down as a tenant. I think it could be done differently. I think we could have different tenants. I think we could address these safety issues differently. I think we could make anything different than it is today. It's the first thing that I say, somebody joins my team, whatever level they are, first thing that I tell them from day one, you do not have, there's not a clock that has to expire before you're allowed to use your voice and you're allowed to know better ones. You always have to be willing to do the work, but you can always use your voice and you can always try to change, you know, what it is that we're doing, how we're making decisions. This company is yours. These decisions are yours. So I leave everyone with that phrase, unless you know better ones. All right. Thank you, Nate. And speaking of changing things, 
Red is changing things by saying, hey, let's take uh, the best from the University of Washington and the friends and family of the University of Washington, and let's get that information out to everybody here on the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. And I think as Red and Sumeya have helped change the game, I think this story of Nate inspiring Red, what is it, 15 years ago, if I, I heard him correctly on when he dug up that email, it just shows you the, the power of community and like... You don't know when you put yourself out there to make the product management community better. You don't know what cascading effects that has. And it's super cool that what Nate was doing and he got to see the effect of bringing community together. And then also 15 years later, just how rippled that was. And so I hope all of you will join us in creating community, sharing knowledge and opening up more pathways and access into product management especially among people who've historically been marginalized and, and historically been excluded from product management. So I hope you'll work with all of us. Raul, I see you out there. I've got somebody, not to put you on the spot, but I've got somebody who works at Minecraft and he wants to have a gaming episode of how to succeed in product management. So I'd love for you to join him. Speaking of community and putting people on the spot, Raul in the audience, reach out to me. I'd love to have you on the same episode as this guy from Minecraft and have a gaming episode of how to succeed in product management. Anyway, I've talked too much. Red, you you get to close it out your concluding thoughts what do you take away from today's conversation every week i choose something that is slightly tangential and this week while i would love for everybody to remember to subscribe to join our slack group to come back next tuesday at 4 p.m this week i i want to give a special shout out it really goes back to the Sameas, the Jeffs, the Nates of the world. If you're somebody who has the spunk, the enthusiasm, the energy that we have, please ask yourself, could I be doing more to grow my community? And if you're someone who thinks there's a gap in the product management world, Slack us, reach out to us, ping us on LinkedIn and say, hey, I have an idea. Because guess what? Nate did that to me and then got me to think about how I could solve a problem and I want to pay it forward to you. So if you're somebody who thinks you can solve a community problem, start a community, grow a community, help product managers in any way, shape, or form, don't hesitate. Just ask. You can't get what you want unless you ask. Closed mouths don't get fed, Jeff. That's what us salespeople like to say. Back to you, buddy. <laughs> You've got all sorts of redisms or whatever you would call like your slogans and frameworks. And I love it. Also, shout out to Amika, who's out in the crowd or was, who's also doing some community work in fintech. Anyway, so huge thank you to Nate. Huge thank you to Samea in red. Huge thank you to all of you listening. It takes a village to create a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And we here at the Product Management Center at the University of Washington are grateful for all of you that of what you're doing to support each other and to support our efforts. So hopefully you'll stay in touch. Uh, we've got another great show next week and looking for guests in June. So reach out to me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and let us know that you want to share your insights, give back to the community and just keep on making the world a better place one day at a time, one connection at a time and one minute at a time. So we'll see you next week on how to succeed in product management.